care for all Your bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys I'm super excited that we are joined today by someone that I really wanted to talk to for a while probably one of our most uh knowledgeable uh in a in a technical way that we've ever had on the show definitely not a stand-up comedian um but today we are joined by uh, a housing researcher and displacement researcher uh research scientist actually wow um that I've been you know just really I've been reading his work and I think it's really interesting and I'm excited to dive in um this is Tony Damiano welcome to the show thank you thanks for having me on Kate so okay what do you let's start with like the super basics what do, what do you do for your job like what is what is being a housing and displacement researcher on a day-to-day basis sure so um you know my name is uh, Dr. Anthony Damiano, Tony is just fine. Um, and uh, I'm a research scientist, meaning that I work in sort of an academic setting, but I'm not on the tenure track. So um, part of the growing ranks of contingent uh, academia, which is a whole topic and podcast in and of itself. And so um, I'm at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, um, and I've been here uh, about 10 years, uh, grew up in uh, in Iowa originally. Um, and so I've been doing this work throughout my grad school, both master's program and PhD program. Um, and I've been doing a lot of applied research throughout that time. Um, uh, my second year in grad school, I started at the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs, uh, Cura. And we are a community-based research center, meaning that we work with uh, specifically low-income communities of color uh, throughout the Twin Cities metro to help basically bring the resources of the university to help them um, build power and sort of under, better understand sort of uh, urban public policy issues uh, that they're facing. And so um, what's fascinating is when I started, it was sort of right after the Great Recession. So most of the issues we, we were dealing with were related to foreclosure um, and sort of what happens to homes after they're foreclosed on, because oftentimes the banks and whoever ended up at the homes didn't even know they had them and sat vacant. And so um, as the market recovered, sort of the issues that we were hearing from our partners and from community members shifted from foreclosure and this sort of, you know, terrible market taking place to, uh, oh, the market is recovering. All of a sudden, home prices and rents are rising. And so we started to hear a lot more concerns about gentrification. Um, And so this was around, I think, I mean, it's a while back now, but it was probably around 20, 15, 2016, um, we launched sort of a very large scale gentrification study in both Minneapolis and St. Paul that did more sort of um, had both a quantitative portion. I'm a quantitative researcher, so most of what I deal with is numbers. But we also had a significant qualitative portion because so much about knowledge and knowledge production is not just about numbers. I mean, numbers are important, but so much of it is about people's experiences and that experiential knowledge is incredibly important and often gets missed, I think, in gentrification research. So I'm really proud that we got to sort of combine what I would say do the best of both worlds with that study. I I read your paper, which I haven't read that many academic papers outside of like when I was in college. So congratulations, you got me to read something that was hard to understand. Um, so if I'm understanding your 
work correctly. You know what? I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you explain in like lay person's terms, like what your paper about displacement concluded and just like how you got there for, for an audience of people who are, uh, you know, not, <laughs> not researchers themselves. Sure. Sure. I, I, so I just want to clarify when you say the paper, you mean the paper, the one that, um, the one that's so controversial. It's yeah, about very controversial why ivermectin one. cures COVID. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, uh, the, yeah, the paper you're, you're, you're mentioning, um, so it's sort of related to this initial work that we did, you know, in 2016 around gentrification and, one of the things that when we talk to people about gentrification, one of the things that they pointed out is a sign of gentrification is lots of new construction, lots of large new apartment buildings coming to the neighborhood and a lot of residents then noticing that as these new buildings are coming in, their rent is going up. Um, and so that's a very, I think, important observation and something that we take seriously, right? That I think being a community-based researcher, we view what people, what regular people are telling us as important to consider. Um, and I would argue that a lot of sort of mainstream academia doesn't do that. Um, and something that we try to do, and I think is really important. Um, so then out of that, it was this question, you know, cause at the end of the day, it's an empirical question. What happens when you plop a brand new, um, high-end, uh, some may refer to as luxury. I try to avoid that term just because it's so loaded, but um, brand new apartment building catering to high-end residents. Um, what does that do to existing rents around that building, right? Because, you know, economic theory can, you can make an argument that it could raise rents or that it could lower rents. And so as a good researcher, you want to try to build a model, find the best data you can and answer it the best that you can. And so we sort of started from there, um, me and my, uh, this paper is called um, um, Build Baby Build, the Effects of New Construction on Existing Rents uh, in Minneapolis. And uh, it's being co-authored by uh, my friend and a health economist, um, Dr. Chris Frenier, um, just, to, just to give a little background on that. So that's kind of how we started. So what... Okay, I have like two questions and you can answer them in whatever order. One of my questions is, how do you even research something like this? Because one of the things that I feel like is frustrating is that, you know, there's like not that much research on this topic and people act like what is, I think essentially just a few papers have provided you know, things that are like, that it's completely conclusive that mm -hmm. new construction does not raise rents, lowers them or whatever. And I'm like, wait, I think this is kind of all coming from like uh, one or two studies. So like, how do you even study this? And I, I guess like in your paper, I think what you found is that it does raise rents, but like a little bit, right? Or I, yeah, I can get in. I'll, I'll get into the results in a second. But, you know, one of the things about housing um, is that there just isn't good. There isn't very good data out there um, on a comprehensive scale, especially data that's publicly available and things like that. Like um, if you think about home values, count every county in America has detailed data of the value of every parcel um, in in the country. Right. And that's updated on an annual basis. 
in, in excuse me, in many places that's public. Um, and there's no equivalent on rents. And so you're starting at a huge disadvantage because the data that is available in most places is not very good. Um, most places don't have public rent registries. Um, shout out to places like Berkeley that do, but you know, vast majority of places don't. And so you're dealing with trying to cobble together data from uh, private sources as best you can, especially because you want data at the building level, right? We can get neighborhood and census tract level rents from the census, but getting that building level rent is something you really need to do this research. Um, and so we were able to work with some of our community partners and get access to a proprietary data set on rents um, from uh, the company CoStar, not to be confused with the uh, the other CoStar, a completely different company. It's not, not Sorry, the astrology. The other company. CoStar is like an astrology company, right? I yeah, don't know. Yeah. 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 Man, that would be, that would, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the old joke that economics is astrology for men, but I won't go there. <laughs> it is a bit on the nose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just just for the sake of clarity, they are completely separate companies. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so we got their data and they track building level rents going back to 2000. And so we were able to, I had to, you know, do do sort of the data downloading myself. That's a whole story in and of itself. It took me about 40 hours to manually download the data for these individual buildings. Um I hope it was and, at least winter time in the Twin Cities when you did that. It was. I mean, that's nine months out of the year. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> much more likely that that's the case. And, and it was actually. So, you know, um, stuck inside um, might as well might as well do some um, uh, massive data download. Um, but anyway, so from there, we were able to say, OK, here are here are existing buildings that were already built. Um, and then we were able to see when new buildings came into the, the data and then measure how rents change around these new buildings. And so we basically come up with, you know, in a perfect world, you know, and in medical research, you have randomization, right? And you're able to create a randomized controlled trial. In the real world, world you can't do that. And so you have to develop what's called a synthetic control. Basically, can you come up with something that you can plausibly say is a treatment versus control group uh, and measure how rents change. And so we use distance. And so we say um, existing buildings that are very close to new construction. So within like a quarter, less than a quarter mile, those are treated by, by being close to the new construction and buildings that are slightly farther away. Those are the comparison group. And so we're going to compare the rent trajectories of those two groups. Um, and this is common. Um, other papers that come to different conclusions than ours do things very simu similarly. So that's not controversial at all. Um, but um, don't want to get too far in the weeds on that. Uh, happy to talk um, two-way fixed effects uh, models uh, all uh, um, offline, because uh, I'm sure all of your listeners are very fascinated by that. Um, so anyway, so we measure that. Um, um, and and say how how do rents differ between those two sort of groups of buildings? Um, and one thing that's different from a lot of the other papers in this group, uh, and I should say there's been only one peer-reviewed paper on this specific topic. The rest of maybe half a dozen papers are still all working papers, including mine. So I want to be clear about that too, that my paper has not gone through peer review yet. Um, 
But we hypothesize that the effects of the new you know, market rate luxury buildings might have different effects on different parts of the market. That you know, the housing market is not sort of one smooth supply and demand graph that you know, older buildings in poorer condition are catering to a completely different market of tenants than existing high-end buildings. And so it seems very sort of rational to expect that maybe the effect of the new building is different. Um, when you look at sort of low-end buildings, again, this is these are the types of buildings where we'd be worried about displacement of low-income residents versus sort of newer buildings, um, existing buildings. And so then from there, what we find is we find sort of evidence of both kind of a traditional supply and demand um, supply effect, where the new luxury building um, moderates rents for new for existing luxury high-end buildings, right? Because they're all competing directly. I mean, our, our hypothesis, I should say, is that they're both the new building and the high-end existing building are competing for the same tenants, right? And so there's a direct competition effect. And so the, you, they see a slight decline in rents. However, at the low end of the market, um, landlords, we hypothesize that landlords are basically seeing this signal of like new luxury construction and saying, oh, there's more demand to live here. And so we can raise rents and still be well below the rents of those new buildings. Um, and that's how the data plays out. You know, we find sort of a... Um, I think in the range of sort of four to 6% uh, higher rents for lower end buildings um, near new construction and sort of a, a moderate, you know, small decline of one to 2% um, for rents at the top end. So it's a complicated story, right? It's not, yeah. you know, um, it doesn't fall neatly into one category or the other, but um, our results pretty consistently show that, you know, at the low end, there is this potential that increased rents could affect displacement. And I want to be clear, we are not able to directly measure displacement. And that's like a whole thing in and of itself. You know, as hard as it is to get data on rents, it's orders of magnitude harder to get data to show evidence of displacement. That seems to me like that seems to me like a giant problem is that it's very hard to get evidence of displacement. Mm -hmm. I have seen what to me seems like some evidence of displacement um, in New York. I know that it's not perfect, um, but both like anecdotal, like, you know, like just, you know, people are saying like, yeah, once my neighborhood started gentrifying a ton, the landlord raised the rent a bunch, like mm -hmm. in response to the fact that there was like a ton of new, like yuppie restaurants and stuff. It just completely changed. And then I had to go. I mean, like that is something I've seen with my own eyes and heard from people. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I've also seen like in New York, um, there's been, you know, some studies on different rezonings that basically showed like, you know, the results of it. They can't like directly say like was this because of the rezoning or not, but basically like around the same time as the rezoning, mm -hmm. you know, thousands of uh, black and brown residents moved out of these 
neighborhoods that were rezoned and thousands of the popul the white population increased by mm -hmm. thousands. And, you know, it's, it seems like it's, it isn't possible to say, you know, directly that it was like a one for one relationship. Cause like, who knows what was going to happen in the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the other scenario, you know, where it, maybe that was going to happen anyway. I don't know, but it basically, it just seems like it was, it is like super, super, super hard to study like who is being displaced, what the cause of the displacement is, you know, perhaps there's, there, there probably is multiple causes, but people I've noticed when we're talking about this, you know, lately, like in the media and, you know, like it, there's people just sound very certain about it of like, oh yeah, like there is, you know, new construction and rezoning. None of this causes displacement at all. And to me, I'm just like, well, it doesn't seem like anyone actually knows that. Like, it seems like a very unanswered question. No, I think anyone who is so certain about it, I think is, is completely wrong. I think that's, I think a big fear. And I think it also shows the limitations of this work. Like I'm a quant guy. I'm a numbers guy. Uh, I love this stuff, but it's not a substitute for getting out and talking to people. And it's also not a it's also not a substitute for the values that we have around who, who knew construction should be for and who, who uh, new amenities should be for, right? Those are value-based questions. And I think one of the big limitations, even the best, even like the, the best displacement studies, right. Are always looking backwards. Right, because it takes a while to to gather and organize this quantitative data. But if you're talking about an active case or an active rezoning, that's way too late, right? Like, um, one big advantage of qualitative data and going out to talk to people is it's, it's instantaneous, right? Um, you can do that at any point. You you don't have to wait for anything to happen. Um, and in addition, I think. The extent that you trust people to understand their own communities, and I do very much so, and and I think people who who do community based research, that's part of how we understand data and knowledge, is that community members know things that numbers can't pick up, that you can learn a lot, and that's what we did in our that's what we did in our gentrification study because we didn't have access to, um, you know the 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 data to to measure displacement, so that's what we used our qualitative um research for to talk about displacement and also how there's multiple kinds of displacement right there's physically you know getting removed from your apartment but there's also cultural displacement um where local institutions whether it's um you know ethnic grocery stores or open spaces or community spaces or things like that as those go away that's another i think incredibly important type of displacement um, and all of that texture and nuance and, and things like that can get lost in the shuffle if you're just looking at numbers. And I think you can really miss the forest for the trees, um, you know, if we're if that's the only way that we're talking about displacement is can you prove through a, a fancy causal model that but for this new building displacement didn't happen? Yeah. What peer-reviewed research is there on displacement right now? Um, you know, there's a lot. Of the, I think the best, one of the best summaries that I've seen re recently is by uh, Jacob Carlson. And he goes through this in detail. Um, and, you know, part of the issue is that even the best data that we have on displacement, 
the vast majority doesn't explain why people moved, right? Because displacement involves not just leaving, but being forced to move when you don't want to. And most surveys that ask people, you know, or who fought, who, that track people when they move, it doesn't ask them why they moved. Yeah. Um, and one thing that Jacob Carlson does in his sort of literature review is basically says that at least using the the, the New York City data, which is really good because they do actually ask people why they leave. His research shows that, yeah, there is more involuntary displacement in gentrifying neighborhoods compared to other places um, where people actually say, I moved because I was evicted. I moved because the landlord jacked up my rent, you know. I moved because of harassment or, you know, something uh, along those lines. And so um, I think that's something to consider. I think there's also a lot of data using or there's also studies that use other kinds of administrative data like health insurance data or credit reporting data. Um, And all of those studies are kind of mixed. Some show no evidence of displacement, some do. Um, So I think there's still a lot we need to to learn and understand. And I'm also much more in kind of the do no harm camp as well of that. If we don't really know what's happening, like that we should err on the side of caution. And I think that's where um, it's important to get at the policy implications, right? Because part of it for me is I don't think the policies I, you know, think are, are necessary are not really contingent on any particular study being right or wrong mm-hmm. um, about it. Uh, and I think academics and people trying to get dunks in on Twitter very much focus on coming to that, that the outcome of my study or any other studies proves a particular policy pathway is correct, um, which I don't think follows at all. Because um, let's say my study, let's say the study that 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 Chris and I did is correct, right? That new construction, new market rate construction raises rents for low for for lower tier housing. Let's say that's true. Well, then my policy prescriptions would probably be rent stabilization, um uh, uh more vouchers for tenants, um uh more money, specifically uh preferably public housing uh and construction of public housing. And um, things like just cause eviction to keep tenants in their homes. Yeah. Right. A broad suite of policies to help low income people improve their housing stability um, and, um, uh, and, and things like that. If my study is somehow wrong, let's say my study is wrong. And the, the, the people who say that the new construction lowers rent um, around then, well, let's see. Well, most of the studies say it, it moderates rent two to four percent, which again, you know, when I don't even know what rents are in places like San Francisco or New York right now. I haven't looked recently, but um, I mean, they're Probably in like thirty five thousand dollars one yeah. bedroom right here. You know, right. yeah. So even if that's correct and I'm wrong, well, that's still not affordable to the vast majority of people. Yeah, exactly. And so what policies would I be supporting? Well, I'd be supporting rent, rent stabilization, construction of new permanently affordable, preferably, you know, non-market public housing, land trust housing, um, broad suite of tenant protections, things like just cause, things like right to an attorney, um, you know, all of those types of things I would think would be the correct policy anyway. And so 
I think it's good for people in my world and the policy wonks of the world to, I think we should still be doing the best research we can, but also be put it into context compared to the scope of the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah. This stuff always reminds me of, um, you know, the movie Fargo. I'm assuming you know the movie Fargo. As I a- do. I do. <laughs> I just want to point out that despite being called Fargo, the vast majority of the movie does take place in Minnesota. I just want Yeah, to- I know. I know. So I just, but I just always think about that part at the end of the movie where she just goes like, and all for a little bit of money. And that's like what this shit reminds me of because it's like, it is like, you know, like even in the best, like, let's say, as you said, like, let's say this is like totally, you know, these people who say that, you know, market rate construction lowers rents, you know, it, it even like in their best predictions, it lowers rents like such a small amount that it does not solve the issue for, you know, the overwhelming majority of people. So it's like, we have to do something else. Anyway, it's weird to me to be so invested in a solution to a problem that doesn't actually solve the problem in any world, you know? Yeah. And I think that's an issue with a lot of it because like, you know, a lot of the policies that, um, that, that Yimby support, I support as well. Um, as a general rule, like I think, especially in in exclusionary and high income communities, there's been barriers for generations to building low cost housing and subsidized housing and more dense housing, uh, and the the effects that those have on racial segregation and um, uh, racial and economic exclusion are massive. Right? There's no there's no argument um, about those effects. Um, but the question is. If we just remove some of those barriers and don't do anything else, what's the expectation, right? And I would argue that while correct, um, in general, that without a suite of all of the other policies, like some of the ones I talked about, you're not really going to move the needle on those issues very much. And so we need to, we need to, we need to contextualize reforms in the right way, right? Like, um, it doesn't mean those reforms are necessarily bad, but I think we need to talk about them in within the proper scope of what they can actually do yeah. and, and what they don't do and just be honest about it, um, which I think gets lost in the shuffle, especially uh, through, you know, eight layers of reply guy discourse. Uh, well, like and it also to me, it's like, you know, it makes sense that things are really you know, that the impacts of a certain policy might be different in one community versus another. Like in New York, some of the rezoning conversations that we have are about like, you know, suburbs that are you know, very wealthy and very exclusive. Mm-hmm. And okay, yeah, fucking build apartments there, of course. But when you're having, when you're, when an entire community of working class people of color is protesting a rezoning because they have seen that every other time it's happened mm-hmm. that all the rent stabilized buildings get torn down because the landlord can make way more money by, you know, selling or, you know, rebuilding or whatever. Like that's not, I think it's the wrong response to tell those people like, oh, by the way, you're just really stupid. You don't understand my graph. You know, like I think that the experience and what people have seen with their own eyes 
matters for a lot, especially when it doesn't seem like there's enough data on this to be in any way conclusive. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. to me, it seems like people are talking about this, like it's the equivalent of like vaccines work. Like, no, we know vaccines work because it's been studied a lot, a lot. And so, yeah, it's not very valid when people are like, oh, you know, vaccines don't work or something. But with this stuff, it, it seems like it's just not like there's there's not a, a clear answer yet. Not even close. Not even close. Um, again, my my co-author of of the of the new of the supply paper uh, is a health economist. And I, he was intrigued when I told him about, you know, the, the, the issues. And um, he's very un disengaged from 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 housing Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when I told him about the data we have and I was like, this is like some of the best data out there. He's like, that's nuts, because yeah. like for his dissertation, he had access to health claims data, like a million record of all sort of Medicaid health claims in the state of Minnesota. Yeah. And that is like a data set that you can regularly get. And there is just not the equivalent of that. Um, in housing. And so I think any sort of, you know, these pronouncements in comparison to vaccines, I think is just, I think both just wrong. I mean, it's insulting first to the community members who are seeing this happen in front of their eyes and being told that they're, that they're, that they're idiots, but it's also just silly from a research standpoint to talk about certainty in something that is inherently incredibly uncertain, hard to measure, um, then that we don't have good data on. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So um, we'll wrap up in just a second, but like what could cities be doing to get better data or like what is there, are there any, um, you know, policy prescriptions that would make researching this stuff easier? Yeah, uh, rental registries. Um, a lot of cities in California and places that have rent control in place um, track rents over time, right? Um, that Landlords need to submit their rent rolls and the rents in all of their buildings on an annual basis. Um, the same way that, you know, all businesses need to do the, this type of accounting. Um, and and as I mentioned, the fact that we have admit free open access to um, property value data, um, it should be the same for rent information as well. Um, and I think there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, both in terms of of for tenants to know like am i being charged a reasonable rent for the building that i'm in and i think you know in my selfish sort of researcher brain uh it would make this kind of research much easier uh and and able to do as well um and even the cities that you know many most of the cities that 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 do track this data they don't make it public either. yeah uh, and as far as I know, um, Berkeley, California might be one of the only cities that makes their rental registry data publicly available. But you know, and it's better for cities and and um, regulators as well, because they have a better understanding of what's going on um, yeah. in their housing markets, too. So I think I think there are a lot of benefits to that um, across the board um, for everybody involved. Um, and I think that's the best way to think about um, sort of transparency um, on this data side. That makes sense to me. Yeah, Minneapolis and Twin Cities strikes me as a, you know, like an emotionally intense place to study this stuff because it's, 
you know, Jacob Frey is uh, extraordinarily pro new construction and Minneapolis is also a place where people are sleeping outside in some of the coldest temperatures in the United States, like places that no human should have to be outside in, you know, going in porta potties. And I think that gets at, yeah. And I think that gets at, I think some of the contradictions we're talking about, and it's not just Minneapolis, right? I think so many big cities have this, um, uh, this contradiction between a progressive face, progressive political establishment, uh, establishment at one time, but yet these massive deep, deep seated, um, disparities, uh, racial disparities, income inequality disparities, people, um, obviously, um, unsheltered homelessness has, um, been going up the past few years. Um, uh, and I think a lot of people have, have seen that, um, and it's happening. And so, um, what is sort of the, next step from here as far as kind of understanding those contradictions and what we can do about it. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, how can our listeners find and read your work if they want to know more? Yeah. If they want to read more, you can check out uh, uh, the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs website, cura.umn.edu. Uh, I also have some work posted on my personal website, uh, tonydamiano.com. And yeah, and you are, I think, locked on Twitter as as I would completely be myself if I was researching <laughs> housing. So yeah, <laughs> not a glut. Yeah, you're free to send me an invite. Um, no promises. I'll say yes. It's not personal. I swear. <laughs> just to send a message. It's like, look, I'm not a psycho. I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Start with that. Right, well, Thank you so much. We really appreciate your coming on. And this was a really informative conversation. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Mohanad Al-Sheikhi. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song is performed by Emily Fremgen and written by Emily with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's, and I am at Mohanad al And Twitter is where you can find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is your land.